So we're in Matthew 5. We have been going through the book of um, Matthew for 10 weeks now. And I think for me, it's been wonderful. And one of the reasons why I've been doing this is because the reason I chose this book, we go through books of the Bible all the time. One of the reasons I chose this book was because it's just about Jesus. It's about Jesus' teaching, about what Jesus did, about his character, about his teachings, about his life. It's about the gospel, the good news. And I think this is a time we really need to focus on that because the world around us is going bonkers about a bunch of other stuff, politics and viruses and who's, who's in what, which group and who agrees with me and who doesn't and all of that. And that is a huge, massive trap. And one of the things that reading the Gospels does, reading the Bible in general does this, but it focuses you on the things that are important. And that's what Matthew 5 does. Is Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's all about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? And Jesus describes the kingdom of God not by coming up with new stuff, but he reaches back into the Old Testament law and the prophets, and he says, I'm fulfilling that. And he brings those things, he clarifies them, makes them clear because they've gotten unclear at the time. And he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And that's, and that's what we're going to do this morning. I think it's really powerful and kind of recalibrates our worldview, recalibrates our emotions, recalibrates what we think is important and what's not important. Okay. So we're going to finish up Matthew 5 this morning. Uh, Matthew 5 is actually a, a relatively short chapter, but it's packed with like a lot of dense teaching. There's these little sections, um, and it's a mistake to see each section as something that stands by itself. They're all connected, so I'm trying to let these flow together as best I can, you know, still breaking it up into multiple sermons, but that's what, that's what I'm trying to do here. So Matthew 5, 33 through 37 We'll go all the way through verse 48 this morning, but let's just start with 33 through 37. It says this. Oh, and by the way, I, don't, I won't be able, because Owen, my son, is not feeling well. I won't have the scriptures on the screen. You'll have to just, you know, read your Bible. All right. Uh, so get your Bible out. Get your Bible app out, whatever it is you use. And read it that way. All right, so here's what it says. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, <clears throat> you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right. So much like some of the other teachings we've encountered so far, there's some important background here okay, that will help you understand why Jesus is talking about this in the way that he's talking about it. Okay. The Old Testament is actually full of oaths. Okay. So it becomes pretty obvious when you look at a, all the scriptures about oaths in the Old Testament that Jesus is not, his point is not to say stop taking oaths, okay? Um, in fact, the Old Testament often encourages people to take oaths in God's name. 
Paul took oaths in the New Testament. God himself takes oaths. So if you don't believe me or you'd like to do, actually, this is a really interesting just study to do, go through these scriptures, to, to just look at all the places where promises are made either by God or to God. Really interesting. So if you're looking for a neat study to do, here's a great list of scriptures for you right here in my notes. By the way, my notes are linked in the description of this video. You can go look at those right now. Follow along if you like notes. Um, so there's a list there of scriptures where oaths are being taken or being encouraged to be taken. The thing to notice in these examples is that the swearing of oaths in, in the Old Testament is intended to intensify the promise, okay? It's still about the truth, okay? It's meant to give weight or importance to the promise being given. So when you promise something, if you make it an oath or you swear by God, in, the, in these examples, then what that swearing is doing is it's adding weight and gravity to the promise, okay? Um, what Jesus is talking about here is a little different, okay? The people in Jesus' day had created an enormous legalistic system of laws that created loopholes that allowed people to legally sin against each other, to legally lie to each other or be dishonest if they made their promise with certain language, okay? It's kind of crazy, but it's not that far-fetched. It's very much the way our legal system often works these days, is if you can find a way to do something legally and still lie, then you've won, supposedly, right? And this is, this is the kind of thing Jesus is coming against. I'll give you a quote from D.A. Carson's commentary. He says, in the Jewish code of law called the Mishnah, there is one whole tractate, give, tractate given over to the question of oaths, including detailed consideration of when they're binding and when they're not. For example, one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. The swearing of oaths thus degenerates into terrible rules which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you cannot. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness, but weaken the cause of truth and promote deceit. Swearing evasively becomes a justification for lying. Okay? So that's, that's what Jesus is speaking to. And, that, and, and that will, reading that quote, if you go back and read what Jesus was saying, that's obviously exactly what he's directing his comments to. Um, and you can see this even more clearly if you want to read Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Jesus addresses the same issue. In that case, he's rebuking the Pharisees for this kind of thinking where, you know, you, if you swear by Jerusalem, your oath means nothing and you get to lie just because you use the word by instead of toward, okay? Um, which is crazy, but also not that far-fetched for any of us who live in 2020, is we see this sort of thing happen all the time in our legal system. Jesus' point is about truthfulness, okay? It's not about how you swear or how you promise or the manner in which you make an oath. It's about truthfulness. Specifically, he is commanding us to be truthful as a matter of character, not a matter of legal technicality. If you have to swear on anything in order to get someone to believe you, then you're not emulating the character of Christ. That's what Jesus meant by let your yes be yes, let your no be no. If you have to 
in order to convince somebody that you're telling the truth and you're going to do what you say you're going to do, if you have to make up this elaborate oath, right, or write a contract, if that's the only way to get somebody to trust you, then there's something wrong with your character and that's a real problem, okay? Followers of Christ do what they say and they say what they mean, okay? I think as I've thought about this, this has a particularly strong application to how a Christian acts in the business world in our modern context. So if you promise something, you deliver it. If you're, whether you're a business owner or you're just doing business out in the world like all of us do all the time, if you promise something, you deliver it. If you promise to pay someone, you pay them what you promised you'd pay them. For the Christian business person, a contract is a communication tool that clarifies expectations, not a way to force you to do what you promise. Okay? There's a difference. The world tends to see, con I don't think contracts are a bad thing. I think they're a good thing because it's a, it clarifies the expectations in the arrangement, in the relationship. This is what I expect you to do. This is what I expect me to do. And if we both do this thing, then we can still be friends, right? We can, we can be clear about what it is we need and what it is we expect, okay? But if a contract is just something that forces the other person or forces you to do what you promise, then that's a bad thing, okay? Don't be that person. <laughs> Don't be the kind of person that's always trying to get one over on someone else and then just say, well, it's just business, as though your business life is separate from your Christian life, okay? Don't be that person who's always trying to, you know, talk someone out of what they're selling you for a better price, even though you know it's not the right price. Don't be that person. And just call that, well, I'm looking for a deal, okay? It's good to get a deal, but don't rip people off, right? That's what Jesus is, is pointing at. It's what he's getting at is be the kind of person that's always trustworthy as a matter of character, not just because the law is forcing them to, okay? All right. Next, Jesus moves straight into uh, verse 38 to 42, which I believe is very much related to what we just said. So let's read that. This is Matthew 5, verse 38. He says, you haven't heard, or excuse me, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for, for a tooth, I'm sure, is very familiar to probably everybody reading this, even if you've never read the Bible before. That's a very famous um, quote or law from the Old Testament. There's three places you can find it, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. So a couple of things we need to understand about this law, okay? One is this law is not about revenge, okay? It's about punish, the punishment fitting the crime, okay? That's another way to say an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, okay? Is the punishment must fit the crime. What this law did, among other things, was it prevented violence from escalating, okay? Think about uh, 
what a vengeful heart does. Someone does you wrong, and revenge doesn't just pay back equally for what was done to you. It tends to want, your heart tends to want more. It wants to hurt that person back and then a little bit more, right? Then what does that person do? That person says, man, that's not fair. You got me worse than I got you. So I'm going to get you back and then a little bit more, right? This is how countries end up in war quite often in history, right? And so what this, one of the things this law does, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, is it prevents escalation. It says the punishment should fit the crime. Once justice is done, nothing further is permitted. It's not allowed to do more than what justice requires. Revenge tends to do more than that, and this law prevents that kind of thing from happening in a society. The second thing is, in the Old Testament, this law did, is not given to individuals to carry out on their own. It's given to the nation, to the leadership of Israel. Okay? This is the job of our government. The role, one of the roles of government is to mete out justice, is, and that the justice, that the punishment should always fit the crime. Okay, and that's what we call justice, right? Doing less than that is injustice, is unjust, and doing more than that is unjust. Okay, we all kind of know this, I think, instinctively that this is true. Quite often, uh, the the big kind of controversy that comes up in this verse is the question of pacifism. Is this a defense of pac pacifism? Is it not? I don't think it is. It's a very complicated topic that branches out beyond just this verse. Um, I think ultimately it comes down to how you interpret Jesus' antithetical style in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And by antithetical style, I just mean opposites, okay? Jesus takes one bad idea and he says, like an extreme other end of that to make a point in the middle. It's a type of hyperbole or exaggeration, okay? And he does this over and over and over and over again. We've already seen a couple of examples when he talks about lust and adultery, for example, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Does he really mean literally to pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand? No, he doesn't, right? That's not his point. His point is to, he's, he's trying to have an impact. He's not just making an intellectual argument. He's reaching for people's hearts to shock them a little bit into waking up to what the law actually says, okay? So if you're going to go full pacifism from this verse, my opinion is I think you also have to go ahead and gouge out your eye because everybody's had lust in their heart and cut off your hand and hate your parents. When Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you got to hate your parents, right? Hate your father and mother. Does he really mean hate them? No, I think we know that. And so this is right in, that, in the line of that idea, in my opinion, okay? Um, I don't know how many people out there are arguing for pacifism, but I know there are people. So... There you go. That's my thoughts on that. So there's, Jesus gives a lot of examples here. One of, the, one of them is someone getting sued over their tunic, right? I want your, your shirt, basically, okay? I don't think anyone is suing anyone over their shirt, but Jesus is giving this hypothetical example because what's more important here is the cloak. That's the outer cloak. The Old Testament law actually has specifically written in it that you're not allowed to steal someone's cloak. People slept, that, that's basically someone's bed, bed sheets, okay? It's the blanket that they sleep on and they also would wear it, okay? It's like an outer coat. Um, this is a guaranteed right 
for a Jew to not have their cloak stolen. And what Jesus says, if someone wants your shirt, don't just give them your shirt, give up your right to your, basically your, your, this article of clothing, your, the thing you sleep on at night, go that far, all right? Go the extra mile. In a minute, he means that literally, but that's what he means here also is go all the way, just give up the right that you have to that, um, that item, that thing that you own. He's, he's giving something, an example that is extremely precious to people. This item of clothing, he's saying you should give, being willing to give that up. Um, that's intense. Okay, it'd be like saying, give up your, your bed to someone who, who wants your shirt. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Then he says, if someone slaps you, be, be ready or willing for them to slap you twice, right? This is an insult. Imagine someone taking, slapping you with the back of their hand in front of people. This would be deeply a deep, serious, shameful insult, okay? A slap to the cheek it would have been embarrassing. It would have been deeply insulting. And it would have been your right in that culture to strike them back. For someone to do such an insult, such an embarrassing, disrespectful insult, it would have been literally your right to slap them back. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Instead of slapping them back, and instead of not slapping them back, offer them your other cheek. The same idea as the cloak and tunic. Then he also says, a stingy, tight-fisted attitude is the financial version of an eye for an eye, okay? When he says, if someone asks you, is begging for money, give them the money. Don't refuse them, okay? This is not about whether or not you should give money to the people at the street corner at the stoplight, all right, and whether or not that's a good idea, okay? What he's saying is, being a tight-fisted person, you're not obligated before the God by the law legally, technically, to give to that person. But he's saying, if they ask you, do it. Why? Because you should be a generous person, right? And then the third example he gives, I think is the clearest for us, is about going the extra mile. You may not know this. Any Roman soldier at the time could commandeer any person and require that person to carry a load for them. So a Roman soldier could be walking down the street and he's carrying a heavy bag or something. And he could say, hey, you, come here. And he could make that person would have to drop what they're doing and carry this load for them a certain distance. And what Jesus says is, and that's, that's, that's messed up, right? Um, that an occupying nation, um, I try to imagine this, some other country is occupying the United States, right? And their soldiers are walking around. And anytime their soldiers want you to stop what you're doing, no matter how important it is, and carry something for them, you have to do it. Jesus says, not only should you do what they what is required by law to carry that distance, the required distance, but double it. Go another mile. So if he says, carry this one mile, I'm, you should take it another mile. Quite, it's quite literally where we get that phrase, go the extra mile, right? Jesus' point here 
is really difficult, okay? Because his point is that the Christian doesn't get to go around demanding their rights. That's hard for us, isn't it? The Christian isn't entitled or selfish or stingy. A Christian is humble, selfless, and immediately willing to give up their rights to retaliation or recompense, meaning payback. A Christian doesn't need to be compensated for a personal offense or an injustice. A Christian's generosity, financial and otherwise, is not dependent on how much they, the recipient of their generosity deserves it. Think about that. We tend to be very generous to people that we think are noble or deserve it. And we tend to withhold our generosity from people that we think are slackers or don't deserve it in some way. And that is not how Jesus acts. I know this brings up all sorts of questions about, you know, don't give people money that are going to use that money to buy things and do things that will harm them. I get that. And that's not what Jesus is looking at right now. That's not in view here in what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is after here very clearly is about this human propensity we have when, we're, when someone does us wrong to want immediate payback, to be paid back, to be compensated for the injustice, and to demand our rights and say, this is wrong. The way you're treating me is wrong. And Jesus said, stop it. Not only do you not get to get paid back, but you don't get to demand your rights at all. He says, be a generous, loving, humble, selfless person. Go the extra mile. Go even farther than is required of you to love someone and bless someone, whether they deserve it or not. That's what he says. This is absolutely radical. It is, was radical then, and it is radical right now. Because this is not the human heart. This is not what your heart wants. What your heart wants is to demand your right to pursue your own happiness. And that is not a Christian outlook on life. The Christian outlook on life is I'll lay my life down. And when someone mistreats me or says something mean to me or does something I don't like or there's some injustice against me, instead of fighting for myself, I'm going to just turn my cheek and say, hit me again. This is not the way the world thinks. The world is all about self-preservation, not generosity. All right, now he goes on because... He's not as hard as that, those sayings are, which I think they're really hard the more you think about them. He doubles down on it in the next section, okay? So if you're feeling like, man, just leave me alone, Jesus, he's not going to, all right? Look at this next section. This is Matthew 5, 43 to 48. He says, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So love your neighbor is a biblical command. Hate your enemy is not. Okay, love your enemy. Because he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That was an actual teaching time. Okay? May sound crazy to you, but again, it's one of those things where if you think about it, it's not that crazy. We would, probably wouldn't say that out loud, but we often act like it. Okay, the love your enemy thing is a biblical Old Testament command. And what had happened was there were uh, certain sects of and certain rabbis who were teaching that love your neighbor was this very narrow, exclusive word, neighbor. Like your neighbor is literally the person next to you, okay? And everyone else, outsiders, are to be hated, completely kept out, okay? Uh, the, in fact, the Qumran society community, which was a, like a monastic um, Jewish community, is actually the group where we preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? Um, so kind of a big deal. They were extremely legalistic, extremely sectarian, secluded. And they literally, you can see their writings, they literally taught this exact thing. Which they said, look, if you're part of our community, you're holy and sanctified. If you're not part of our community, you're to be hated and you're an enemy. You are a danger to the sanctity of our community and we want you to stay out. Okay? That was a written down teaching, right? Love your, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So Jesus not only rebukes them for hating their enemies, which I think we all will probably agree with, don't hate people, but he goes farther than that. He doesn't just say, don't hate your enemy. He then commands them to love their enemies instead. Right? And if you go read his parable about the Good Samaritan, that's what that's about. It's about who is my neighbor, right? Settle this debate. And Jesus says, your neighbor basically, okay, go read the story, but your neighbor is whoever you are able to help right in front of you. It's the person in front of you that needs your help. That's your neighbor. He expands the definition of neighbor to geographically speaking, anywhere, and any person of any type. They just need to be in front of you where you can help them, okay? That's radical. Once again, Jesus personifies this ideal at the cross. These three things, okay, that we've talked about. One, radical honesty. Honest when you're not required legally to do it. Being an honest person as a matter of character, not as a matter of being forced to, okay? Number two, humble self-sacrifice as a response to injustice. Not needing to be compensated for being done wrong, not going around demanding your rights, being an entitled person, but instead being generous. Generous with your money, generous with your every, everything else you have. And three, loving your enemy. Those three things will change the world. Think about it. If we just did those three things, how radically transformed the world around us would be. And I've been thinking about this because the political, just political division in our country right now is staggering. And who knows next week what it's going to be like. But no matter what the political landscape looks like next week, regardless of what you hope it'll look like, what it actually looks like next week and the weeks beyond and the years beyond that, these three things will, are the things that Jesus gave us to change the world, and they always, always, always work. 
meaning being an honest person, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Not going around retaliating, being trying to be compensated for wrongdoing, but instead letting generosity and selflessness be your response to when people treat you poorly. And loving your enemy, not just refusing to hate them, but actually loving them. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, be kind to your enemy. That was his second point, right? Just be kind, and then he takes it farther. What does it mean to love somebody? I don't even know if it's possible to genuinely love a genuine enemy. Think about the people Jesus is talking about here. One of the clearest examples here, if you were to narrow it down, is the Romans. These people were not only occupying their nation, but they were destroying it. They were murderous, violent, brutish, pagan people. They were robbing them financially. They were slowly eroding their culture and destroying their faith. It was a horrible time to be in Israel. And ultimately, in the end, Rome destroyed the temple and murdered thousands of people. These are the enemies Jesus is saying you should love. I just can't, honestly can't imagine a more radical way of life than that. And it seems impossible, which brings us to this final point there in verse 48. We've already read it. I don't know if it hit you the first time you read it, but let's read it again. He simply says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Great, right? Do you feel that way when you read it? Great. I got to be perfect now? It's a hard words, but I think we, we need to clarify it a little bit. I think that can help you a little bit to understand this. It's important to note that the verb there to be, right? Be perfect, or you must be perfect, is a future tense verb. It's very, it's hard to capture this in English, okay? It's future, okay? Jesus makes it a thing we must be, not in the present tense, but in the future. It's, you, you could say you shall be perfect, but that doesn't quite capture it in English either. Um, the per perfect is the state that you will have in the future. You shall be perfect, all right? You, but the you there is not passive. It's still a command, okay? So we can clarify it a little bit that it is what you're becoming, but it's also a command. I think it's a beautiful phrase. It beautifully captures the, the mystery of the Christian life and your sanctification. That, yeah, you need to be holy. Like, this is how you should act. And it's a command. Like, he's saying, be an honest person. Love your enemy. You don't have a choice. This is what Christians do. But he's also saying that this is what I am making you into. This is what you are becoming. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And this is how the citizens of the kingdom of God act. This is how they live. And you will be this, whether you want to or not. This is what you're going to be. This is how God says, Jesus says to us to be perfect. It's hard and it's wonderful all at the same time. It puts tremendous pressure on us and it relieves tremendous pressure all at the same time because you and I both know we can't be perfect without his help. C.S. Lewis actually mentions this in his 
famous, wonderful book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, um, I commend it to you. It's not an easy read. You might have to read it a few times, but it's a fantastic book. Here's a quote, C.S. Lewis. He says, I find a good many people have been bothered by our Lord's words, be ye perfect. This is verse 48. Some people seem to think this means unless you are perfect, I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect, then if he meant that, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he did mean that. I think he meant the only help I will give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. This is what Jesus is after. This is why he's teaching what he's teaching is he's unwilling to lower the bar below perfection. But he's also unwilling to leave us below perfection. And he is growing us into this. This kind of radical honesty, this kind of radical self-sacrifice, humility, and love of enemy is impossible to pull off on any kind of regularity in the world. Maybe one time you've been like, ah, I actually managed to love my enemy. What happens? You just discover a new enemy that you didn't know you had, and this one's worse than the one before and harder to love, right? This is what Jesus is producing in us as Christians. Apart from Christ, it is impossible. Only the kingdom of God is like this. The world is not like this. It cannot be this. Only the kingdom of God is ever going to be like this, because this is too hard for any human being to pull off. So I hope you feel some pressure, right, to act like a Christian. But at the same time, you should feel excited because this is what Christ in you is making you into is the kind of person that can be like this. So I want to pray for us um, and ask um, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ himself to come and meet with each one of us right now and begin to produce this in us, and, if you're, if, and that we would begin to act and live in a way that is radically different from the world and get our values from Jesus and not our values from the world. Amen. So let's pray. God, we are inspired and we are convicted by, what, by your requirements of us. God, I pray right now that by your spirit, you would enable us to love our enemies, to lay our lives down for our enemies, to return blessing for cursing, to not be the sort of people that go around demanding our personal rights all the time, demanding apologies for offenses, demanding that other people agree with us and change their minds demanding that our way and our thoughts and our perspective be imposed on other people, but instead that we would be people who are humble and selfless and generous in every single way, not because we're forced to, but because it's who we are and it's who we love, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as we look to the cross and look to Jesus, that we would see his powerful example of what it looks like to have all the rights in the world, but to give them up for other people, to lay his life down for other people. God, I pray that that selfless, enemy-loving, 
heart would beat in us right now? How would you do this kind of thing, this work, this deep, impossible work in us, that we would be perfect just as the Father is perfect? I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, guys, love you so much. Uh, we will see you next Sunday.